I went into this thinking I was going to be defending Joel Osteen actually a lot more than I am. I'm trying to give a fair analysis of a typical sermon from Joel Osteen, evaluating his use of scripture, listening to his points, considering them against Christian theology. But it's like way worse than I thought. Okay, pause. Real quick, let me just tell you guys what this video is because I posted a video that was really long. It was a full analysis of an entire Joel Osteen sermon, but Joel Osteen had that video removed from the internet. And long story short, it stayed down, but I have pulled together clips from that video that I don't think they'll be able to remove. And that's this video right here. That's today's video. This specifically is how Joel Osteen handles scripture. So I took an entire Joel Osteen sermon and I just analyzed his use of scripture in today's pieces of a Joel Osteen analysis video. But you'll want to stick around to the end probably because I'm also going to talk about how he actually does this sort of repentance prayer that a lot of Christians like at the end of his video, as well as his money ask, because Joel Osteen tells everybody he doesn't ask for money, um, but they do. That's misleading the way that they've done it. So th this, however, is not meant to be like a hit piece. Um, rather, this is all about discernment. It's all about understanding what's really going on. So here you go. This sermon's called Let It Go, and I don't think it's meant to invoke visions of the Frozen song, although that will be in your head by the end of all this. I'm not, I'm not witch hunting. I'm not looking for things to complain about, but they will present themselves <laughs> whether I like it or not. And this is going to be... Something that I hope helps you. If you're a Joel Osteen fan, I, I especially want you to watch this video. I'm, I'm not yelling like he's a heretic and he's a false teacher and you need to, you know, like we need to burn his church down. Uh, I, I want us to like really carefully think through this in faithfulness to Jesus, in love for the word of God. And because the, the true message of scripture is precious and wonderful and good, we're going to consider these things thoughtful. This is what surprised me. Joel Osteen misuses scripture in every case except one. There's one where he uses, I think, a scripture properly. And every other case, we'll look at the verses themselves. This is, this is not, you're not being taught the word of God. You're being taught, Joel has a point. He's going to take a scripture out of context to try to, to, try to prove it. And um, that's wrong. Like, if I love God's word, I, I would never take it out of context knowingly or, or perhaps just recklessly. So we'll see about that. Will Joel teach us the Bible or will he use the Bible to try to elevate the, the authority of his own statements? And that's... What we'll see. Jesus said offenses will come. He didn't say they might come. If you're a good person, if you're nice, nobody will do you wrong. He said disappointments will come. Betrayals, things that are not fair will come. How you deal with these offenses, how you handle the hurts will determine whether you move forward and see the new things God has in store or whether you get stuck bitter over what didn't work out. The issue here is uh, he's quoting Jesus now for the first time. This is a, a big deal. Joel Osteen, what he just did was he quoted Jesus. He, he says, hey, if, you got to see this to juxtapose like how the scripture is being used. Like we got we to gotta get those skills to just know when Jesus is being hijacked for some purpose other than what Jesus has, right? So he says, Jesus said offenses will come. Now in Osteen's context, offenses are betrayals, things that are unfair and hurts that come against you. The offenses are personal. You're the center of the universe here. The offenses are against you personally. I'm offended. I'm hurt. Let's look at what Jesus actually said in context. So here's Luke chapter 17, verse one. I don't know here what translation he's using. Using. <laughs> You'll find that Joel plays fast and loose with translations he's using. At one point he uses the Amplified Bible, but then he uses another quotes later, and I can't I can't find that version anywhere. So Luke 17, 1, uh, then he said to the disciples, it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. What does is, what is Joel leave out? Woe to him through whom they do come. Like he's never going to talk about this part because this is negative and this will be absent from a message on the topic. Um, but when we look at this stuff in context, we find that these offenses are causing believers to sin. They're not you personally being hurt because someone offended you. They're offenses that cause you to offend Christ with sinful behavior in your life. Let me take you another passage that gets into more detail. It's Matthew 18, verse 6 and verse through verse 9. Let's read Jesus. Joel's quoting Jesus. Let's read it here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Right? If you cause a believer to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. That's what Joel quoted. But woe to the man by whom the offense comes. So offenses in Jesus's concept here are the things that cause you to stumble in sin. People who put sin before you, right? Um, uh, 
pornographic websites are putting sin before others and, and leading to them stumbling. And there's going to be great judgment from God upon the people who are promoting this stuff and creating it and pushing it like that kind of thing. People who do give false gospels, false teachings, there's going to be great judgment from God upon the people who do these things. These are the offenses. So offenses against you is the focus of Joel. Offenses against God is the focus of Jesus. And that's a nice summary of how Joel Osteen's teaching does things. It takes it and says, I'm going to take this thing that's about Jesus and about God. And I'm going to wrap it around me. And it's about me now. And really it's about you. And this is why he's so likable. He's so sneaking positive. I like the positivity, but I think rational people know that pure positivity is, it's like just eating sugar for dinner. <laughs> it's, it's going to get you sick. Um, so Osteen hijacked Jesus's concern, replaces it with his own. This is his first use of scripture and it's completely, completely wrong, but I think it's typical. Now, your wounds do matter. You listening, your wounds matter. People hurting you, that matters. But you can't make yourself the hero of the universe here um, and recognize that in those wounds is a temptation, in those wounds is an opportunity for you to extend the grace God's given you towards others and those types of things. We'll talk more about a biblical view of personal wounds as we go. So now he goes back to forgiving others, not to the pain of loss of a job or of, or of a loved one. He's going to shift over to forgiving others. Let's read about what he says about Peter uh, listen to what he says about Peter. This is, oh, poor Peter. He always gets abused by preachers. <laughs> In the scripture, Peter asked Jesus how often he should forgive someone that did him wrong. It's funny because Peter was known to be offensive. He's the one that cursed out the young lady when Jesus was arrested. He cut off a soldier's ear defending Jesus. He said, Jesus, should I forgive them seven times? The Jewish law said three times. He more than doubled it. He thought, Jesus, I'm growing. I'm coming a long way. Jesus said, Peter, seven is good, but I want you to forgive them 70 times seven. It wasn't really about the number. Jesus was showing us a principle. He was saying, I want you to live in a continual process of forgiveness. Not something you do every once in a while, but on a daily basis, forgiveness should be a part of our life. He was setting a system in place so we wouldn't hold on to the hurts, offenses, disappointments. He knew that practically every day we would have these opportunities. And the quicker you let things go, the easier it is. All right. So a lot. So some of his conclusions there are actually spot on for application of your life. Um, some of them, <laughs> but but what he does to Peter is not appropriate. <laughs> okay. So it's again, it's Joel's use of scripture is problematic. And I, th I think there's only one example of a proper good use of scripture in this entire sermon. And every other example is a, an abuse of scripture. He started with a point and he found a verse to use it, to, to use to make that point. So Peter, he says, is known to be offensive. Okay. No, he's not. Okay. No, he's not. Like, I don't see, I don't, I don't know that Peter's known to be offensive. He gives a couple examples. Peter cursed out a young lady. Uh, no, he didn't. Okay, so let's look at this in Scripture. Mark 14, verses 69 through 71. Here's the actual passage. Um, Mark 14. All right, let me get you there. And um, who did who did, did Peter curse out a young lady in this passage? Um, and the servant girl saw him again. Now, this is Peter's there. Uh, while Jesus is, is, is being taken away to be crucified, Peter is there. He's nearby. And this is a dangerous moment for them, right? Peter... If he's identified as a, as a disciple of Christ, he might get attacked by the crowd too. So the servant girl saw him and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, but he denied it again. This is part of Peter denying that he knows Jesus, that, he, that he's, he's a disciple. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you're one of them for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. He wasn't cursing out anybody. He was calling curses down upon himself in the old school way of saying, um, like, if I'm lying, I'm dying, right? It, it, that's what he's saying. He's like, curse, his curses are to say, if I'm, if I'm one of Jesus' disciples, oh, I don't know the man and, and may God do such and such to me if I'm not telling the truth now. It's, a, it's, a, it's an oath, a curse upon himself, a swear, an oath to promise that he's telling the truth. That's what he's doing. He's not cursing out a young lady. He's not being offensive in that sense. Um, the next one is him cutting off a soldier's ear, but that passage is not about offending people. Jesus is not like, Peter, you're being offensive again. You know how I don't want you to be offensive. Peter took a sword and tried to kill a man. 
that is not just about offending people. Like we can't just make that about a general offense. Jesus responds to show he doesn't want his disciples using violence to spread the kingdom of Christ. That's the lesson there. Don't use violence to spread the kingdom of Christ. It's not about don't offend people. In fact, the gospel is offensive. This is ironic because Peter's actually more offensive in the book of Acts than he is in the gospels. And this is after the Holy Spirit comes as a gospel preaching man. He offends people because he won't back down from the truth of the gospel because he tells people to repent. Paul says that the message of the cross is offensive to people and he preaches it anyways. So there is no biblical rule that you can't be offensive. There's ways to be offensive, right? If it's the truth of Jesus that offends you, then I'm in the right. If it's my carnality that's offending you, now I'm wrong. But that clarity is not there. Um, he just wants to make a thing about being offensive. He says that the Jewish law says uh, three about forgiveness that, you know, Peter's like, should I forgive three times or seven times? And um, Osteen says, hey, the Jewish law said you had to forgive three times. Technically, that's not right. That's not the law. The law didn't say you had to forgive three times. It was um, uh, later rabbis, like 100 years later, whatever. There's a rabbi who says, hey, three times is good enough. That may or may not have been known during the days of Jesus. We don't know for sure. Sometimes later rabbinic stuff, it's hard to know if it was around in the time of Christ. Um, so he, he just misstates Jewish law there. Just a side issue. It's not that big of a thing, but um, we may be too harsh on Peter here. Joel's conclusion, though, is spot on. Jesus absolutely is trying to say, I want you just to forgive and forgive and keep forgiving. That's the point of Jesus. It's seven times 70 and all that other stuff that he says there. So it's it, where I would disagree, though, where I would disagree with Joel is the purpose of you forgiving people is not for your own benefit. It's for Christ. I had a conversation with a friend I was I was talking to. Actually, it was Tim Barnett, buddy of mine, uh, who's also an apologist. He And I asked him, I said, Tim, if I told you as a Christian that you're supposed to forgive, and then I asked you why you should forgive, what things come to your mind? And he goes, oh, I think I should forgive because Christ forgave me. I think I should forgive because it's, it's, it's actually sinful for me to harbor unforgiveness after I've been so graciously forgiven. And I said, yeah, those two points nowhere in Joel Osteen's message, <laughs> right? You forgive for you. You forgive so you can have big open doors. You f- you're forgiving them as a means to selfish ends. And that is a problem. What is that creating amongst people? When we, when we even forgive, when even our grace is purely for our gain. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. He was saying every day we should be ready to forgive. Doesn't have to be big things. That man that cut you off in traffic, let it go. Don't let that sour your day. Your time is valuable. That's a distraction trying to get you off course, offended over something that doesn't matter. That clerk that's rude to you at the grocery store, just smile and move on. What you need to know is what he didn't tell you about the Lord's Prayer. Um, He says, and I'm quoting here, don't let that sour your day. Your time is valuable. Behind Joel's messages, I'm just trying to help you accomplish your goals and your mission and your destiny and your you-ness and the glory of you is, is kind of what's sort of hidden behind the whole thing. What you'll never hear from Joel in this whole message is the reason Jesus says you need to forgive. Let's look at the passage he quoted and let's just read the rest of it. Okay, so the whole Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The next thing Jesus says, and this is hard to hear this. These are Jesus's words. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, Your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, you won't achieve your destiny and get a promotion at your work. No, wait, no, that's, sorry. That's not, I read it wrong. He says, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It's an injustice as a Christian. If you name the name of Christ, it's actually immoral not to forgive because you've been forgiven. That's not a message you're going to get in, uh, in, in Osteen's thing, right? Because he's going to say, it sours your day and your time is valuable, so don't hold on to it. It's not just going to slow you down to reaching your destiny. It's going to damage your walk in your relationship with God. Like, it's going to bring you into guilt before God. 
to be unforgiving. That Jesus's words, not mine. If you don't like that teaching, you uh, don't don't look at me. <laughs> this is where David in the scripture excelled. He was an expert at letting things go. As a teenager, his father didn't really believe in him. He looked down on David, didn't affirm him. When the prophet Samuel came to his father's house to choose one of the sons as the next king of Israel, his father didn't call David in from the shepherd's fields. He thought he was too small, too young, not that talented. He didn't give him a chance. It was only after Samuel didn't choose one of the other sons that David was called in. David could have lived bitter, chip on his shoulder. He felt the sting of rejection from his own family. His brothers made fun of him. When David took them lunch out on the battlefield, his oldest brother, in front of all the soldiers, tried to belittle him. He said, David, what are you doing here? What'd you do with those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? He was condescending, sarcastic. David could have been upset, offended, but the scripture says David turned and walked away. No, it doesn't. He knew the importance of letting things go. Had David not done this, he would have never seen Goliath. Had he stayed there and tried to straighten out his brother, we wouldn't be talking about him. Oh, Joel. <laughs> what we see here is there's a principle. Let it go. Joel's going to teach this principle, and he is going to find biblical stories that support his principle, whether they do or not. <laughs> so let's let's look at now. And I've seen, it's not like Joel Osteen's the only guy who's ever done this. I've seen pastors do this plenty of times. Teachers do this plenty of times. Um, and people in the congregation do this, where they they sort of distort the biblical story so it fits into something that they want. Um, so David's father looked down on him. We don't have anything in the scripture that tells us that his father looked down on him. It's true that his dad, Jesse, wasn't expecting David to be king of Israel. But that's not the same as looking down on him. It's important that David's not the kind of guy you would expect to become the king of Israel. That's why God picked him, because he's not the guy. It's not because of all these incredible qualities he has. So he says that his dad didn't affirm him. We have no evidence biblically to say that that's true. He said that he was too small, too young, and not that talented. Like, where does where do we get this from Jesse? We don't. We don't see this in Jesse and in 1 Samuel when you read about the stories. There's nothing there. Biblically, here's the actual meaning of David. It's not this idea that David learned to let go of his mean family's treatment, and then he became king, and then you could learn to let go of your mean family's treatment so you can get your destiny. That is not the message of the text of scripture. Here's the message, and you have to have Saul in your mind to understand David. So in 1 Samuel uh, 9-2, we read about Saul. Saul is the guy who becomes king of Israel first. And he's, he's meant to be the opposite of David. He shows you the difference, right? Um, Saul. Uh, so he has a choice son. This is Saul. Handsome son whose name is Saul. There was not a, man, not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. Like, obviously being attractive is supposedly important to Joel, like telling you you're attractive. But here Saul is considered the wrong guy. And he's like the more most attractive one. Uh, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Saul is just, he looks good on the outside. He seems like the right guy to be king. He's bigger and taller. He's super handsome. Yeah, that's, that's Saul. But God does not want Saul. This big, good-looking guy who commands respect, Saul blows it. Saul gets disqualified to be king, and God chooses a new king. And he wants to choose a king who is someone after his own heart. So uh, let's look at 1 Samuel 10, verses 23 and 24. It says, So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. This is Saul again. And Samuel said, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Saul looked, look how affirmed he is. Saul is so affirmed. Look at how Samuel's affirming him. Saul, you're the best. And the people are like, long live the king. Saul is affirmed well, up the wazoo here, and he's the wrong guy. Because affirmations aren't that great. <laughs> and, and they can lead to arrogance and pride that leads to a disqualified destiny, right? Or kingship or whatever, as Saul gets. Now, the point of the passage with, with David being selected, where he, um, 
For those who don't know the background, David is going to be selected to be the new king after Saul is disqualified. God sends Samuel the prophet and says, I want you to anoint, anoint the new king. And he goes to the house of Jesse. Samuel doesn't know which one of Jesse's sons will be the king. Jesse, this is key, doesn't even know one of his sons will be king. He's just told to come to the feast with Samuel and bring his kids. Well, he leaves one kid behind, uh, David, because he's the youngest, so he's going to mind the sheep. This is I don't know that this is an insult. Okay, they have a family business. Someone's got to take care of the sheep. So they end up leaving David behind. He's the youngest. He'll have other opportunities in the future, perhaps, to, to do this kind of stuff. It's not an insult. Okay, but um, let's read it. First Samuel 16. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 13. Story of David. It just doesn't fit the picture that, that Joel was giving. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab this, and said, this is the oldest son of of uh, Jesse and and Samuel thinks surely the Lord's anointed is before him um, this has got to be the guy Eliab he's he's the oldest he looks responsible he's he's large or whatever God responds do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him and here's the lesson for the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart see here's the guy he's again he has affirmations he kind of like Saul David God's like no I don't want him I'm not interested in the talented. I'm not interested in the physically attractive and the biggest and the strongest, nor does he necessarily have to pick the most untalented. It's that talent and attractiveness are irrelevant to this calling of God. He's looking at the heart. As we read on, it says, um, so Jesse, um, uh, there we are. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, the next son. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, uh, the Lord has not chosen these. Awkward moment. <laughs> okay. Verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. He doesn't say the youngest who I despise and look down upon, who I don't affirm. <laughs> like this is just Joel Osteen making stuff up. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for he will, we will not sit down till he comes here because Samuel realizes this must be the one. He's the only one left. He's got to be the coming king. So he sent and brought him and now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. So he, he's a good looking guy, not as good looking as Saul, but he's a good looking guy. It's not like it's bad to be good looking. It's just not the important thing. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. So he anoints him. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him. The point with David is that God wants a man after his own heart. And that's what David is. Let me go to the scripture for that. God said to Saul that his kingdom was not going to continue and that the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. This is what David represents. David represents a guy who doesn't have the skills and the high this and that. He just loves God and he's committed to God. Joel Osteen actually teaches his congregation to be totally committed to themselves and to see God as being committed to themselves. This is what I see in his teaching. It's a very, it's a narcissistic Christianity. I mean, it's not really Christianity because you can't be narcissistic and be Christian because you're about Christ. It's not Mikeyanity. It's not about me. It's not Jeffyanity. It's not about Jeff. It's not Joelianity. It's, it's about Christ. We're supposed to be after God's heart, not our own. So if David was put forward as the best son, if Jesse had done what, what apparently Joel thinks he should have done, and Jesse had said, oh, David, you got to come to this meeting. Hey, Saul, uh, Samuel, check out my son, David. Look, he's, this, he's amazing. He's such an incredible son. Oh, I'm so proud of him. He's so great. I feel like God wouldn't have picked David because he wanted the lesser to demonstrate that the heart that's committed to God is more important than all the other attributes a person can have. Do you see that? But that's not the message Joel has. He, so he hijacks the scripture and uses it for his purpose. Joel says that David, quote, felt the sting of rejection from his own family. Let's talk about David's brothers now. The example he gives is that David's brothers mocked him and, and he said nothing and walked away. And <clears throat> you can't miss this. Joel presents this as though it's key to why David became king and David defeated Goliath is because in the discussion with his brother, he wouldn't say something back, but he walked away. Okay, that's not true on any level. So let's look at the text itself. Um, 1 Samuel 17, and we're starting in verse 23. <clears throat> then as he, uh, oh, let me put it on your screen as well. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. These same words is where Philistines like, 
y'all are a bunch of losers. Your God is lame and, and the Philistines are better than you. And I spit on you kind of stuff that trash talk, <clears throat> you know, theological trash talk. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So David not only sees the trash talk, he sees that everybody is scared to fight Goliath. But David has a heart, a heart after God and he has a different attitude. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his, and give his father's house an exemption from taxes in Israel. Who doesn't want a tax exemption? <laughs> and so <clears throat> David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David doesn't think for a second, I'll just, I'm, I'm the man, I'll take him out because I'm so affirmed in myself. He actually, it's not his estimation of himself. What motivates David is his estimation of God. He's like, this Philistine who's like defying the armies of the living God. And he sees this about God, not about himself. And the people answered him in this manner, so it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother heard, and this is where his brother does get on his case. When he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said, why do you come down here? Why did you come down here? He's, he's visiting to bring him some food. And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you've come down to see the battle. Like you're, you're, you're a little punk. You just looky loo. <clears throat> come here to see the battle. You want us to fight so you can watch. That's what he's trying to. So David, you're trying to stir up our armies to go against them and we're just going to get slaughtered and you just want to watch like you're a horrible person. And David, who doesn't have those motives, Eliab misreads him, perhaps reading his own insecurities into David. David says, he doesn't, walk, he doesn't walk away, right? Joel, you would have thought he said nothing. He says, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? And David's response is to tell Eliab, you think this is about me? I'm not doing anything. This is about that guy defying the armies of the living God. Isn't that a cause for us to be stirred up and to, and to act on, on behalf of God? That's David's response. He, and then he turns from him, but not walking away like I won't talk to you. That was just Joel making stuff up about scripture to give a point that he had decided ahead of time he was going to give. Let's read on. There's more um, about the brother's insecurity and stuff like that. Um, so uh, he, another says the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Verse 31. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with, the, with this Philistine. I'll go and fight him. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're a youth. And he a man of war from his youth. You know, when you're, when you're like 17, 18, you're not nearly as strong as when you're like 30. Okay. You're, you're just, it's just true. Okay. Uh, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he's defied the armies of the living God. Of course I'll win because he's going against God. Notice this, that um, Joel made it sound like El, uh, Jesse putting David in charge of being a shepherd was a bad thing, but this is where David learned the skills that he used to kill Goliath. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, the Lord, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul says, go and the Lord be with you. Um, Saul, so Saul clothes him with his armor, put a bronze helmet on his head and he starts to wear Saul's clothes, but he can't fit in them. He can't walk in them. So he doesn't. So he goes off with his staff in his hand and some smooth stones. And then he kills Goliath. You know the story. Um, the point is that David wasn't mistreated here. He was misunderstood and mistreated in a moment by Eliab, by one of his brothers, but not that it's like this sort of, he was raised in this, in this cruel mistreatment throughout his life and all this sort of thing. Um, not that nobody has that. You want to get into that? Look at Joseph, okay? His brothers regularly, routinely harassed and ridiculed him, almost killing him, selling him into slavery. There's a good example for you if you're looking for that. And there's a, he's a much better example of letting go of past resentment towards family. David's not really a good, good pick for this one. So yeah, David has loyalty to God. That's the point. It's all about God. And that lesson is absent in Joel's teaching. He uses the story to teach something about you when it's about loving God. Let's look at the next clip. And the truth is, David's father wasn't fair. 
It wasn't right to leave him out in the fields. His brothers were demeaning, belittling. Is this true? Was it like actually wrong for, you know, Jesse to leave David in the fields? Like where do we, this is where David wrote the Psalms. He wrote the Psalms when he was in the fields. He learned to use the sling. These things were kind of important and he never complains about it. You know, he writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, like he wouldn't have wrote that if he hadn't been a shepherd. His brothers were demeaning and belittling him. It says um, there's a truth that's there in one moment. That's true out of their own insecurities, very possibly. But um, that was because of their lack of faith in God's power. And the lesson is about not trusting in God's power and not loving God enough to, to put your life on the line to serve him. That's the lesson. Osteen wants it to be about your ability to rely on yourself, to be affirmed, you're attractive, you're great. And so he reverses the meaning of scripture in this regard. Um, yeah. There's a Goliath waiting for you, a new level past the offense past the rejection, past what they said. My prayer is that we will do like David and live with this perpetual forgiveness, that we'll develop a habit of forgiving daily. When offenses come, they bounce off of us like water off of a duck's back. I mean, that is, the applications are beautiful. Live daily forgiving, absolutely, totally agree. Um, the phrase, there's a Goliath waiting for you makes me chuckle because Goliath, like he's like, there's a Goliath waiting for you. And it's like this new level in your life. I'm like, well, that's not what Goliath is about for sure. But more importantly, Goliath's not about you at all. <laughs> like Goliath isn't meant to represent the obstacles in your life primarily. It's opposition to God and his kingdom and how those who have a heart after God can overcome for the sake of God's kingdom, not their own destinies can overcome the obstacles to God's kingdom. And the most shining example of this is Jesus overcoming Satan, right? Through the implements of a shepherd, so to speak, to draw out the analogy. And that's beautiful. Um, Goliath there being a picture of, of demonic opposition against God's kingdom and Jesus overcoming it. Prosperity preachers and their promises, though, there, it, there's always a new thing coming. Do you notice this? Uh, Osteen's audience becomes addicted to hearing that something good will happen eventually. Their, hor their, their Osteen horoscope is every day's a breakthrough. Tomorrow is your your uh, your next level. Tomorrow is your new job. Tomorrow is your promotion. Tomorrow is your this and that. And it's always put out there. But scripture can't really be used honestly to support these types of teachings. Um, always forgiving though, that's absolutely key. Always forgive, but it's selfish in motive here. So that's a problem. When David defeated Goliath, the whole army was in awe. The city was cheering. Even the Philistines, the opposition, couldn't believe what David had done. God knows how to lift you up when people try to push you down. Don't let that offense in. Start letting things go quickly. Don't think about it a week and then you'll do it. You won't have to get over so many emotional wounds if you don't let the offense in in the first place. If David would have woken up each morning, thought about his father mistreated him, why did he leave me out? How his brothers were demeaning. That bitterness, the anger, the self-pity would have stopped his destiny. Do you just, you're definitely seeing it by now, right? You see the focus on you. His bitterness would have stopped his destiny. It's a, it's, he's a life coach for you to achieve your goals and your dreams. And if, if that involves you like Peter going to be crucified, if that involves you like Paul having your head cut off, right? According to tradition. If, if that involves you suffering and being tormented, that's not consistent with Joel Osteen's message because in his mind, destiny is prosperity. Um, so there's a problem there. There's a problem there. But let's, uh, let's keep moving here. A friend of mine grew up in a single parent home. At five years old, his father walked out of his life and wouldn't have anything to do with him. As a little boy, he longed to see his dad, but he wouldn't return the mother's call. In his teens, he would send letters to his father, birthday cards, happy Father's Day. He wanted his father's approval so badly just to know that he cared, but he never heard a word. He felt the rejection. Thoughts told him he wasn't good enough. There was something wrong with him, but he didn't go there. He didn't let the bitterness in, the self-pity. He said what the psalmist said, even if my mother and father forsake me, God will adopt me as his very own child. This is actually the one time he used the scripture and I thought was right. Okay, this is Psalm 2710, um, where he, according to him, he quotes it, although my father and mother have abandoned me, yet the Lord will take me up and adopt me as his child. 
I found the translation Joel uses. Like online, people were debating. They couldn't figure out what translation he's using. Um, this was the Amplified Bible. But later on, when he quotes scripture, he uses other translations. So there's just who knows what consistently. The, uh, the, the way this is when you don't have like a paraphrased type thing with like the Amplified uh, is when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. And to me, this is a beautiful use of the scripture. You have a family who's broken. You have uh, betrayal and abandonment from family. And you look and you say, but God, you're faithful. That's not you. You're, you're the one I need and have needed all along. And that's a beautiful use of the scripture. I affirm that. That's the one verse Joel used in a good way. David went to the palace to work as one of King Saul's armor bearers. Saul was proud of David, loved him like a son. But over time, Saul became jealous of David. He could see the anointing and favor on David's life. Instead of being happy for him, he wanted to get rid of him. While David was playing the harp for Saul, trying to make Saul feel better, Saul threw a spear at David and barely missed him. David had to flee for his life. He had done nothing but good for Saul, honored him, served him, but in return, Saul tried to kill him. David spent months living on the run, hiding in caves with Saul and his men chasing after him. At one point, David could have killed Saul. He snuck up on Saul and his men while they were sleeping, but he wouldn't harm him. Despite David being good to Saul, Saul never changed his mind. He wouldn't have him back in the palace. All right, we're going to... Okay, there's true, it's true-ish. This is true-ish. David, he's a man after God's own heart. His motive for not killing Saul and for not attacking Saul is God and not his destiny. And that, see, this is what Joel's doing. He's replacing honoring God is not the motive. So let's look at the text to show, like I said, every verse I think he's used has been wrong, um, except for one, his use, his use of it. Let's look at 2 Samuel 1.11. Um, therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them and so did all the men who were with him and they mourned and wept. Oh wait, I jumped ahead. That's, um, I think in the next clip. First Samuel 24. Yeah. First Samuel 24. Um, this passage is where, um, we can ask the question when David decided not to kill Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill him, why did David do it? What was his motive? That's what I'd like to notice. Now it happened when Saul returned from following the Philistines that it was told to him saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs. He had to go potty. In other words, David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave <laughs> in his potty cave. And then the men of David said to him, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as seems good to you. They want David to kill Saul. David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He didn't, he wouldn't kill him, but Saul either had set his robe down or, or something, right? So he takes and just cuts a little piece of the robe off because he wants to prove to Saul, look how close I was. I could have killed you, but I wouldn't. He's trying to show he's loyal, right? Now it happened after David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe and he said to, the, to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, and to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Notice the, the word Lord or Yahweh three times in that passage, because David's concern is, oh, God wouldn't want me to be raising my hand against the man he has chosen. God can take him down. I'm not going to, I'm not going to physically attack the man. Okay. So David, he, he holds himself back, but his motive is the Lord. He's not doing it. I'm going to hold back because I'm going to be king one day. And if I, I won't attack Saul because, because, you know, that's how I'll get my promotion. His motives are because he's a man after God's heart. He loves God. That's his motive. Um, again, in first Samuel 26, he has another chance to kill Saul. And is this for some of you, I just want to mention, and forgive me, cause this might sound mean. I don't mean it that way. For some of you, the most boring parts of this video is when I actually take you to scripture and we read it. And I'm going to tell you that's part of the problem. <laughs> uh, the patience of learning scripture, just wanting to pull a, pull an application out of it, but not really wanting to understand it. That's what we see, unfortunately, with, you know, this teaching. First um, Samuel 26, 8, then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Again, he has an opportunity, you know, to, to attack Saul while he's sleeping. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against who the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. David's concerned with personal guilt 
about going against what God has intended and planned. He's not just seeking to achieve his dreams and destiny. Like the motives are completely different and we need to be aware of that. Um, okay. Here's the next clip. Um, we'll talk more about David and Saul and just the allegorizing of the old Testament in order to be a life coach textbook instead of what it is. Here we go. Here's the next clip. Several years later, Saul was killed in a battle. David was made the king. When David heard that Saul was gone, you would think he would be so happy, so relieved. Finally, this man that made his life miserable, caused him heartache, where he couldn't pursue his dreams, was no longer there. Surely David would call his men together, have a big party. But the scripture says David wept when he learned Saul was killed. He wrote a song honoring him, saying how beloved and how gracious was Saul. No wonder David rose so high. He learned to let things go. Can you imagine writing a song about your biggest enemy, the one that tried to keep you down, about how beloved they are? A key to David's success is he didn't let the toxins get on the inside. He didn't bury the things that weren't fair. The anger, the hurt, the injustice, he turned it over to God. So again, I want to affirm, there's a lot of this that's true. The problem is that its motive is self and it's only half of the truth. And so it's true, letting things go and this stuff, a lot of it's true. It's true-ish, right? Uh, what was David's motive though when he spoke highly of Saul? Was it because he was thinking, I want to achieve my destiny, so I'm going to say nice things about this guy? No. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. This is their response. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, who was like David's best friend. And for the people of Israel, because, uh, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, uh, where are you from? And there's this whole thing about the young man. David sorrowed because of the people of the Lord because of Jonathan, his son, because Saul, who he cared about, he didn't stop caring about the person who hurt him. And it's ultimately, it's the people of God. It's the king of the people of God. It's the kingdom of God um, as far as God's chosen nation on earth. So it's his love for God leads him to grieve because he's not just about himself. He cares about others. He, it's He's selfless, not selfish in his mourning here. My point here is this, Joel shows disregard for scripture. It places self is the motive, not God. He says, quote, no wonder David rose so high, he learned to let things go. And I would say, no, the message of scripture is David rose because his heart was after God's heart, not after his own advancement. That's the opposite of what Joel is trying to motivate people to do. Even years later, he was sitting in the palace, the greatest leader of that day, maybe of any day, having conquered all kinds of territory, seen God's favor in great ways. He said to his staff, is there anyone still alive from the house of Saul that I can bless? He still had no bitterness towards Saul. He's still being good to a man that wasn't good to him. Um, this is another twisting of, of the text. Uh, I just have to, don't blame me, guys. I'm not the one doing it, okay? <laughs> um, uh, the reason David has for wanting to bless someone from the house of Saul is Jonathan, not Saul. This isn't, this isn't about what what he thinks it is. Now, David says, is there still anyone who's left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Well, that was left out. Joel must have read the passage because he almost quotes it. But, um, but yeah, this is, this is left out. It's for Jonathan's sake, his best friend who died along with his dad because of the decisions his dad made. Jonathan died because of the bad choices of his father. It was sad. And so he wants to bless Jonathan's descendants because him and Jonathan made a deal that they would bless that, that he would do this, that he would bless Jonathan. So this is all about Jonathan and David, not Saul and David. I'm just saying it doesn't fit in, in this discussion. Um, it shows disregard for scripture and a high regard for the life coach, life coach mission that Joel Osteen is on. Does Osteen know that he's misusing the scripture here? Then he's an incompetent teacher if he doesn't know. If he does know, then he doesn't care. Either way, this impacts you. You can't, you know, my, my mission in ministry here is to help you think biblically about everything. And I'm going to recommend that if you listen to teachers who regularly twist the word, even if you feel like they have a positive message, you will be crippled in your ability to think about scripture because you'll open it looking for life coach passages and not studying it to learn what God has written for you to grow from. David had another great disappointment. His newborn baby became very sick. 
He went home and prayed and fasted, asked God to heal his child. For seven days, he wouldn't eat. He didn't see anyone. He was consumed with this baby, believing that God would give him a miracle. Unfortunately, the baby died. His men were so concerned that when they told David that he might fall apart, they didn't know what to do. David overheard and asked what was wrong. When he found out the baby died, he got up off the floor. The scripture says he went home, washed his face, dressed in new clothes. Then he went to the table and ate a meal. His men were so surprised. They said, David, when the baby was alive, you were so distraught. But now that the baby is gone, you seem like you're fine. David said, I cannot bring the baby back, but one day I can go to be where he is. David could have been bitter. God, why didn't you answer my prayer? God, I've served you. I did the right thing when Saul was chasing me. I've tried to honor you and now this happened? No, David knew to let it go. I don't understand it. It wasn't fair, but God, you're still on the throne. I know you still have good things in store for me. You cannot chalk this up to oops. He butchers this teaching of scripture, this passage of scripture, this whole event that happens, utterly butchers it, surgically removes the guilt of David and the sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. And he acts like David is the victim, purely the victim who has to overcome his hardships by letting it go. This is what I mean. Like he's going to do this to you. You listen to this teaching. You're going to think that the sins you've committed are merely tragic situations you have to let go of so you can rise to your destiny. This hides sin from the eyes of the people who watch his content and then they won't deal with their sin and they'll become arrogant to the point where they're allergic to the gospel because they'll be like, what you're telling me I have to repent? Like I'm highly offended by this. I'm going back to church where Joel will tell me that I'm the hero of the story and that I don't ever have to do that kind of thing. Let's, you, you, you got to look with me at just two verses. Okay. Two verses to demonstrate how he has distorted this text. Here we are. Second uh, Samuel 12, 13 and 14. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. The sin, so you guys know, this is, he sleeps with Bathsheba, has adultery with her. Then she gets pregnant. So to cover it up, in long story short, he kills her husband so that he can't call out David on what happened. Then he takes Bathsheba in. Now that she's, now that her husband's dead, he can take her in. And so she has a baby. Nathan says to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed, you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child who's born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. We know that Joel acted like we didn't know the reason why this baby died. Like we know the reason why it's not the baby is not being punished. The baby hasn't done anything wrong. The idea is that, that this has been a public thing everyone knows about. And God has Israel set apart to show the holiness and goodness of God. And David has marred that. And if this child then is raised in the royal house to potentially become the next king, it sort of affirms that wickedness continually. And so this is a judgment. This is a judgment. This is not something David has to overcome. It's something he has to repent of. That's it. Um, maybe to keep Israel's uh, kingdom from being propagated through adultery and murder. Maybe to show the pagan nations around that God is righteous and he will not tolerate sin even amongst his own chosen people. But the point is that David's not the suffering victim who serves God rightly and this happens without explanation. But just like he surgically removes the sin issue from the life of David. He's going to surgically remove it from your ability to reason about your own walk with God. And um, I'd say stay away. A year later, David's wife had another baby. They named him Solomon. He became the king after David, the heir to the throne and the wisest man that ever lived. Had David stayed in despair, had he not washed his face, let go of the disappointment, he would have never seen the king that was coming. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, this is not about the power of positive thinking that David exhibited. It's about the grace of God that he so graciously started to use this broken situation. He corrected it. He demonstrated his righteousness through judgment, but then he starts using their broken lives to bring out his glory. The message here is the grace of God, not the power of positive thinking. In difficult times, when you don't understand, you could be bitter. If you'll just let it go and keep trusting God, like David, you'll give birth to a king, something greater than what you've imagined, something where you don't think about what you've lost. This is the allegorizing of scripture, right? You're going to give birth to a king. Your Goliath is your next job promotion. The king is your 
I don't know, you, you started a new business and it took off or something like that. And um, I, I like allegories in scripture, but can I say the primary allegories in scripture are about Jesus, not about me and you. And so I have a series called Jesus in the Old Testament that emphasizes all these beautiful allegories. I love this, okay? These pictures of Christ. And I have a link below if you want to check that out. It's it's the most wonderful series I've ever done. The most spiritually rewarding thing I've ever done as far as studying the Bible is this series, Jesus in the Old Testament. But it's not about you defeating your Goliath or you giving birth to your king. It's about Jesus, man. It's about him. And, um, and anybody who finds that bothersome, like something's wrong with you. Like you don't realize who the king really is, is Jesus, is not you. Today can be a turning point. You know what's more powerful than negative emotions? A decision. When you let it go, when you wash your face, when you say like Rudy T, I forgive, then you're moving toward the king that's in your future. Here it comes. You may have buried some toxins. You may be carrying some things that you shouldn't. That's okay. You can release them right now. This is your time to be free. If you'll do this, I believe and declare you're about to soar to new heights. New doors are about to open. New friendships, healing, restoration, breakthroughs, the fullness of your destiny in Jesus' name. And if you receive it, can you say amen today? Why would some Christian be very happy about that and another one, like me, have a problem with it? Um, for those who might not understand, um, I think Jesus' name is being used here and I'm happy his name is there, but I think it's being used as a magic phrase. Jesus is used to empower me to reach my destiny. And let me quote to you, soar to new heights, new doors are gonna open, new friendships, healing, restoration, breakthroughs, and the fullness of your destiny. In other words, narcissism. It's absent of God, it's absent of God as my purpose. Instead, God is the one helping me achieve my purposes, whatever those are. You're, you're kind of free to fill in the blank on what your purpose is going to be. God's not giving you the purpose. He's helping you achieve the purpose that you're sort of picking out of a hat. Um, so being so focused on personal gain is not the message of Jesus. Let me, let me read to you Philippians. Let's go to scripture, that boring old book again for actual clarity on what we're supposed to be <laughs> focused on. What things were gained to me, Paul says, these I've counted loss for Christ. He's not just letting go of wounds. He's letting go of the things he thought were great. The things of earthly success and pomp. The things that would people would think, I'm flying now. He's like, I let go of that. They're loss. What for? For Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of what? My purpose, my destiny, uh, healing, restoration, breakthroughs, new doors. No, for the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I, just knowing him is worth anything else for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. They're nothing that I may gain Christ. I just want Jesus, man, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him, know him and the power of his resurrection. That's eternal life, not just things in this world and the fellowship of what his sufferings, not, not, not new friendships and healing and restoration and breakthroughs, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The two driving factors for Christians are A, knowing Christ, and B, eternal glory, the resurrection, not new doors opening, soaring to new heights, breakthroughs in the, in the full fullness of your destiny. Um, no. Now we get to the part that gives every Christian pause. This is the end of every message from Joel Osteen. He, maybe they tell me, and I, and I have paused too. I'm like, he preaches the gospel though, right, Mike? Like every time he ends his sermon this way, and it might make you think you then can't really um, have fair criticisms of Joel Osteen. Uh, here's how he ends his sermon, and I'm not entirely upset that he's doing this. Let's let's watch it and then talk about it. I'd like to give you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. Come into my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. If you prayed that simple prayer, we believe you got born again. Love to send you some new information on your walk with the Lord. Just text the number on the screen. I hope you'll get into a good Bible-based church and keep God first place. And that's where it cuts. Like, I, I didn't cut him off. That's his own video that does that. The prayer is right. Okay, the prayer is right. I rejoice that Christ is preached here. Okay, the prayer is, is right. But here's the part where I have a problem. Okay, 
it contradicts everything he said so far because you're the you're the victim you're the you're you're the one who has to overcome and you're going to sort new heights but he uses in the prayer i repent and i make you my lord well i'm in understanding that simply to mean lord i've lived a life of where well, you're not lord i've sinned and i'm turning from that i'm turning to trust in you for my for grace and forgiveness Joel has inherited this doctrine from prior Christians, but it's not uniquely Joel Osteen. His uniquely Joel Osteen stuff and what compromises 98% of his stuff is not that gospel. And so there's Joel embraces contradiction. This is why it's hard to work through his stuff. And if you realize it's just contradicting, then you go, okay, the vast majority of his stuff and his unique contribution is effectively a kind-hearted narcissism. And then... He tags onto it um, stuff like, I hope you get into a good Bible-based church. That's what he says. I hope you get into a good Bible-based church. But these are empty words from someone who doesn't have a Bible-based church, right? at least not in his teaching. Maybe Lakewood Church in Texas, it's massive. It's got tons of people there. Maybe they have some great Bible classes going on. I don't know. Not from Joel's teaching, though. That's not Bible-based. His teaching's not Bible-based. That's where my criticism would be there. I actually would think a church that big, they probably got some people there that are serious about trying to bring Scripture and and sort of like come alongside underneath and and bring in real good teaching. And thank you. I'm glad you guys are there. Okay, I'm not trying to criticize you. Probably a lot of good stuff happening at Liquid Church. But the main teaching is very problematic. So Osteen will not deny the gospel. He'll affirm it on occasion, but... The other stuff he affirms seems to be in worldview contradiction to the gospel. And that's what he mostly talks about. Now, the last thing is this. I always heard uh, Joel Osteen say that he never asks for money, but I haven't looked at his stuff in a long time. And so here's his last clip. They do ask for money and they do it in, I think, a despicable way. Thanks for being a part of our YouTube channel. We post new videos right here every week to keep you inspired and encouraged. When you subscribe to the channel, it helps to get the message of hope around the world. If you've been impacted by our ministry, let us know in the comments below and share this page with a friend. We also want to take a moment and thank you for all you do to support the ministry with your donations and offerings. You help keep the ministry going. When you give, I believe God will open the windows of heaven. You'll see his favor in new ways in your life. I know our best days are still up in front of us. We love you and we'll see you next time. When you give, the windows of heaven are going to open up. So there's not just an ask, there's a promise that in your giving, you're going to get more back in return. And that's that's how everything is because it's the narcissism of whatever I'm asking you to do as Joel Osteen, I'm, you're going to get something for yourself. There's a selfish motive behind it. So look, I don't care how much money people give a Joel Osteen. I don't care how rich he is. He gets his treasure in this life and that he can have all he wants. I don't really care. I'm not jealous of that. I'm not concerned that it's, he's got this mansion that he lives in. I don't care. You have all that, all you, all the, all you want. It's all going to burn. <laughs> The concern is that he's actually training people to be selfish in even their service to God, that it's ultimately to get something from God. So not only is there an ask, but it's an ask with a promise that is not right and not proper. So here's my conclusions on Joel Osteen's teaching. For those who um, disagree, feel free to disagree. I, I think that this is accurate, okay? Um, there's an assumption of innocence in his teaching, and it makes people allergic to the gospel and allergic to being confronted about sin issues. And we need to be confronted. The, 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 the word of God is profitable for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, but you, you can no longer use it for reproof and correction in that sense. It can only be used as, as a life coach text. Um, the gospel itself would be offensive, even though he alludes to it at the very end of a message because it tells you about your sin before God. There's a total, second thing, there's a total disregard for scripture's meaning. Um, this is an offense to God and it makes us biblically stupid. It just makes me dumb because I, I, I read David's story and I'm not reading David's story. I'm reading life coach principles from Joel into David's story when they're not there. I can't get the meaning of scripture if I come with life coach principles that I project onto the Bible. There's also a careful avoidance of important topics. This is the third issue. Um, Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, hey, Ezekiel, you're a watchman on the wall. And if you don't warn people that there's danger coming their way, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. There's a responsibility for spiritual leaders to warn people about sin that may destroy them. And by Joel refusing to do this, I think he's actually abandoning an important responsibility as a spiritual leader. And he's he has an accountability before the Lord for this. And um, 
that's a big issue. Avoiding important topics of sin. Even if he was asked and he goes, oh no, I affirm that. Yeah, yeah, homosexuality is sin. I, I would affirm that, but, but he won't teach about it and he won't confront about it. And so it becomes a problem. Is he a false teacher? It depends on what you mean by the term false teacher. Let me say this. Joel embraces contradictions. So on one hand, he'll offer things that are contradictory to biblical truth. And on another hand, he will then affirm the gospel. So what do you do with that? He's a mixed teacher. Look, out of his mouth in one spot comes false teaching. Out of his mouth in another spot comes right teaching. My concern is this. The ratio is pretty high on the wrong side. And so um, maybe Lakewood Church as a whole is different, but Joel's teaching being available to people quite more broadly than just the local church that's there is a self-focused message that will make the true teaching of scripture offensive to people. His teaching can harm you. If you're a follower of Joel Osteen, my encouragement to you would be let it go. That's, I kind of wanted to end it on. I thought that was a good, I thought that was a good way to end. Let it go.